Chapter Two, Part Ten of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by Charles Mackay, Volume Two, Chapter Two, The Witch Mania, Part Ten. In New England about the same time the colonists were scared by similar stories of the antics of the devil. All at once a fear seized upon the multitude, and supposed criminals were arrested day after day in such numbers that the prisons were found too small to contain them. A girl named Goodwin, the daughter of a mason who was hypochondriac and subject to fits, imagined that an old Irish woman named Glover had bewitched her. Her two brothers, in whose constitutions there was apparently a predisposition to similar fits, went off in the same way, crying out that the devil and Dame Glover were tormenting them. At times their joints were so stiff that they could not be moved, while at others, said the neighbors, they were so flexible that the bones appeared softened into sinews. The supposed witch was seized, and as she could not repeat the Lord's Prayer without making a mistake in it, she was condemned and executed. But the popular excitement was not allayed. One victim was not enough. The people waited agape for new disclosures. Suddenly two hysteric girls in another family fell into fits daily, and the cry of witchcraft resounded from one end of the colony to the other. The feeling of suffocation in the throat, so common in cases of hysteria, was said by the patients to be caused by the devil himself, who had stuck balls in the windpipe to choke them. They felt the pricking of thorns in every part of the body, and one of them vomited needles. The case of these girls, who were the daughter and niece of a Mr. Parvis, the minister of a Calvinist chapel, excited so much attention that all the weak women in the colony began to fancy themselves similarly afflicted. The more they brooded on it, the more convinced they became. The contagion of this mental disease was as great as if it had been a pestilence. One after the other the women fainted away asserting on their recovery that they had seen the spectres of witches. Where there were three or four girls in a family, they so worked each upon the diseased imagination of the other, that they fell into fits five or six times in a day. Some related that the devil himself appeared to them bearing in his hand a parchment roll, and promising that if they would sign an agreement transferring to him their immortal souls, they should be immediately relieved from fits and all the ills of the flesh. Others asserted that they saw witches only, who made them similar promises, threatening that they should never be free from aches and pains till they had agreed to become the devils. When they refused, the witches pinched, or bit, or pricked them with long pins and needles. More than two hundred persons named by these mischievous visionaries were thrown into prison. They were of all ages and conditions of life, and many of them of exemplary character. No less than nineteen were condemned and executed before reason returned to the minds of the colonists. The most horrible part of this lamentable history is that among the victims there was a little child only five years old. Some women swore that they had seen it repeatedly in company with the devil, and that it had bitten them often with its little teeth for refusing to sign a compact with the evil one. It can hardly increase our feelings of disgust and abhorrence when we learn that this insane community actually tried and executed a dog for the same offense. One man named Corey stoutly refused to plead to the preposterous indictment against him. 
as was the practice in such cases he was pressed to death. It is told of the sheriff of New England, who superintended the execution, that when this unhappy man thrust out his tongue in his mortal agony, he seized hold of a cane and crammed it back again into the mouth. If ever there were a fiend in human form, it was this sheriff, a man who, if the truth were known, perhaps plumed himself upon his piety, thought he was doing God good service, and hoped to merit heaven by making earth a hell. Arguing still in the firm belief of witchcraft, the bereaved people began to inquire when they saw their dearest friends snatched away from them by these wide-spreading accusations, whether the whole proceedings were not carried on by the agency of the devil. Might not the great enemy have put false testimony into the mouths of the witnesses, or might not the witnesses be witches themselves? Every man who was in danger of losing his wife, his child, or his sister embraced this doctrine with avidity. The revulsion was as sudden as the first frenzy. All at once the colonists were convinced of their error. The judges put a stop to the prosecutions, even of those who had confessed their guilt. The latter were no sooner at liberty than they retracted all they had said, and the greater number hardly remembered the avowals which agony had extorted from them. Eight persons who had been tried and condemned were set free, and gradually girls ceased to have fits and to talk of the persecutions of the devil. The judge who had condemned the first criminal executed on this charge was so smitten with sorrow and humiliation at his folly that he set apart the anniversary of that day as one of solemn penitence and fasting. He still clung to the belief in witchcraft. No new light had broken in upon him on that subject, but happily for the community the delusion had taken a merciful turn. The whole colony shared the feeling. The jurors on the different trials openly expressed their penitence in the churches, and those who had suffered were regarded as the victims, and not as the accomplices of Satan. It is related that the Indian tribes in New England were sorely puzzled at the infatuation of the settlers, and thought them either a race inferior to, or more sinful than, the French colonists in the vicinity, amongst whom, as they remarked, the great spirit sent no witches. Returning again to the continent of Europe, we find that after the year 1680, men became still wiser upon this subject. For twenty years the populace were left to their belief, but governments in general gave it no ailment in the shape of executions. The edict of Louis Fourteenth gave a blow to the superstition from which it never recovered. The last execution in the Protestant cantons of Switzerland was at Geneva in 1652. The various potentates of Germany, although they could not stay the trials, invariably commuted the sentence into imprisonment in all cases where the pretended witch was accused of pure witchcraft, unconnected with any other crime. In the year 1701, Thomasius, the learned professor at the University of Hale, delivered his inaugural thesis, De Crimine Magicae, which struck another blow at the falling monster of popular error but a faith so strong as that in witchcraft was not to be eradicated at once. The arguments of learned men did not penetrate to the villages and hamlets, but still they achieved great things. They rendered the belief an unworking faith, and prevented the supply of victims, on which for so many ages it had fattened and grown strong. Once more the delusion broke out like a wild beast wounded to the death. It collected all its remaining energies for the final convulsion which was to show how mighty it had once been. 
Germany, which had nursed the frightful error in its cradle, tended it on its deathbed, and Würzburg, the scene of so many murders on the same pretext, was destined to be the scene of the last. That it might lose no portion of its bad renown, the last murder was as atrocious as the first. The case offers a great resemblance to that of the witches of Mora and New England, except in the number of its victims. It happened so late as the year 1749, to the astonishment and disgust of the rest of Europe. A number of young women in a convent at Würzburg fancied themselves bewitched. They felt, like all hysteric subjects, a sense of suffocation in the throat. They went into fits repeatedly, and one of them, who had swallowed needles, evacuated them at abscesses which formed in different parts of the body. The cry of sorcery was raised, and a young woman named Maria Renata Sanger was arrested on the charge of having leagued with the devil, to bewitched five of the young ladies. It was sworn on the trial that Maria had been frequently seen to clamour over the convent walls in the shape of a pig, that proceeding to the cellar she used to drink the best wine till she was intoxicated, and then start suddenly up in her own form. Other girls asserted that she used to prowl about the roof like a cat, and often penetrate into their chamber and frighten them by her dreadful howlings. It was also said that she had been seen in the shape of a hare, milking the cows dry in the meadows belonging to the convent, that she used to perform as an actress on the boards of Drury Lane Theatre in London, and on the very same night return upon a broomstick to Würzburg and afflict the young ladies with pains in all their limbs. Upon this evidence she was condemned and burned alive in the marketplace of Würzburg. Here ends this frightful catalogue of murder and superstition. Since that day belief in witchcraft has fled from the populous abodes of men and taken refuge in remote villages and districts too wild, rugged, and inhospitable to afford a resting place for the foot of civilization. Rude fishers and uneducated laborers still attribute every phenomenon of nature which they cannot account for to the devil and witches. Catalepsy, that wondrous disease, is still thought by ignorant gossips to be the work of Satan and hypochondriacs uninformed by science of the nature of their malady devoutly believe in the reality of their visions. The reader would hardly credit the extent of the delusion upon this subject in the very heart of England at this day. Many an old woman leads a life of misery from the unfeeling insults of her neighbors, who raise the scornful finger and hooting voice at her because in her decrepitude she is ugly, spiteful, perhaps insane and realizes in her personal appearance the description preserved by tradition of the witches of yore. Even in the neighborhood of great towns the taint remains of this once widely spread contagion. If no victims fall beneath it, the enlightenment of the law is all that prevents a recurrence of scenes as horrid as those of the seventeenth century. Hundreds upon hundreds of witnesses could be found to swear to absurdities as great as those asserted by the infamous Matthew Hopkins. In the annual register for 1760, an instance of the belief in witchcraft is related which shows how superstition lingers. A dispute arose in the little village of Glen, in Leicestershire, between two old women, each of whom vehemently accused the other of witchcraft. The quarrel at last ran so high that a challenge ensued, and they both agreed to be tried by the ordeal of swimming. They accordingly stripped to their shifts, procured some men who tied their thumbs and great toes together crosswise, and then, with a cart-rope about their middle, suffered themselves to be thrown into a pool of water. One of them sank immediately, but the other continued struggling a short time upon the surface of the water, 
which the mob, deeming an infallible sign of her guilt, pulled her out and insisted she should immediately impeach all her accomplices in the craft. She accordingly told them that in the neighboring village of Burton there were several old women as much witches as she was. Happily for her, this negative information was deemed sufficient, and a student in astrology, or white witch, coming up at the time, the mob by his direction proceeded forthwith to Burton in search of all the delinquents. After a little consultation on their arrival, they went to the old woman's house on whom they had fixed the strongest suspicion. The poor old creature on their approach locked the outer door, and from the window of an upstairs room asked what they wanted. They informed her that she was charged with being guilty of witchcraft, and that they were come to duck her, remonstrating with her at the same time upon the necessity of submission to the ordeal, that if she were innocent, all the world might know it. Upon her persisting in a positive refusal to come down, they broke open the door, and carried her out by force to a deep gravel pit full of water. They tied her thumbs and toes together and threw her into the water, where they kept her for several minutes, drawing her out, and in two or three times by the rope round her middle. Not being able to satisfy themselves whether she were a witch or no, they at last let her go, or more properly speaking, they left her on the bank to walk home by herself if she ever recovered. Next day they tried the same experiment upon another woman, and afterwards upon a third. But fortunately neither of these victims lost her life from this brutality. Many of the ringleaders in the outrage were apprehended during the week, and tried before the justices at quarter sessions. Two of them were sentenced to stand in the pillory and to be imprisoned for a month, and as many as twenty more were fined in small sums for the assault and bound over to keep the peace for a twelve-month. So as late as the year 1785, says Arnaud in his collection and abridgment of criminal trials in Scotland, it was the custom among the sect of seceders to read from the pulpit an annual confession of sins, national and personal. Amongst the former of which was particularly mentioned the repeal by Parliament of the penal statute against witches contrary to the express laws of God. Many houses are still to be found in England with the horseshoe, the grand preservative against witchcraft, nailed against the threshold. If any overwise philosopher should attempt to remove them, the chances are that he would have more broken bones than thanks for his interference. Let any man walk into Cross Street, Hatton Garden, and from thence into Bleeding Heart Yard, and learn the tales still told and believed of one house in that neighborhood, and he will ask himself in astonishment if such things can be in the nineteenth century. The witchcraft of Lady Hatton, the wife of the famous Sir Christopher, so renowned for his elegant dancing in the days of Elizabeth, is as devoutly believed as the Gospels. The room is to be seen where the devil seized her after the expiration of the contract he had made with her, and bore her away bodily to the pit of Tophet. The pump against which he dashed her is still pointed out, and the spot where her heart was found after he had torn it out of her bosom with his iron claws has received the name of Bleeding Heart Yard in confirmation of the story. Whether the horseshoe still remains upon the door of the haunted house to keep away other witches is uncertain. A former inmate relates that about twenty years ago more than one old woman begged for admittance repeatedly to satisfy themselves that it was in its proper place. One poor creature, apparently insane and clothed in rags, came to the door with a tremendous double knock, as loud as that of a fashionable footman and walked straight along the passage to the horseshoe. Great was the wonderment of the inmates, especially when the woman spat upon the horseshoe and expressed her sorrow that she could do no harm while it remained there. 
After spitting upon and kicking it again and again, she coolly turned round and left the house, without saying a word to anybody. This poor creature perhaps intended a joke, but the probability is that she imagined herself a witch. In Saffron Hill, where she resided, her ignorant neighbors gave her that character and looked upon her with no little fear and aversion. More than one example of the popular belief in witchcraft occurred in the neighborhood of Hastings so lately as the year 1830. An aged woman who resided in the rope-walk of that town was so repulsive in her appearance that she was invariably accused of being a witch by all the ignorant people who knew her. She was bent completely double, and though very old, her eye was unusually bright and malignant. She wore a red cloak, and supported herself on a crutch. She was to all outward appearance the very beau ideal of a witch. So dear is power to the human heart that this old woman actually encouraged the popular superstition. She took no pains to remove the ill impression, but seemed to delight that she, old and miserable as she was, could keep in awe so many happier and stronger fellow-creatures. Timid girls crouched with fear when they met her, and many would go a mile out of their way to avoid her. Like the witches of the olden times, she was not sparing of her curses against those who offended her. The child of a woman who resided within two doors of her was afflicted with lameness, and the mother constantly asserted that the old woman had bewitched her. All the neighbors credited the tale. It was believed, too, that she could assume the form of a cat. Many a harmless puss has been hunted almost to death by mobs of men and boys, upon the supposition that the animal would start up before them in the true shape of Mother Blank. In the same town there resided a fisherman, who was the object of unceasing persecution because it was said that he had sold himself to the devil. It was currently reported that he could creep through a keyhole, and that he had made a witch of his daughter in order that he might have the more power over his fellows. It was also believed that he could sit on the points of pins and needles and feel no pain. His brother fishermen put him to this test whenever they had an opportunity. In the alehouses which he frequented they often placed long needles in the cushions of the chairs in such a manner that he could not fail to pierce himself when he sat down. The result of these experiments tended to confirm their faith in his supernatural powers. It was asserted that he never flinched. Such was the popular feeling in the fashionable town of Hastings a few years ago. Very probably it is the same now. In the north of England the superstition lingers to an almost inconceivable extent. Lancashire abounds with witch-doctors, a set of quacks who pretend to cure diseases inflicted by the devil. The practices of these worthies may be judged of by the following case reported in the Hereford Reformer of the 23rd of June, 1838. The witch-doctor alluded to is better known by the name the Cunning Man, and has a large practice in the counties of Lincoln and Nottingham. According to the writer in the Reformer, the dupe, whose name is not mentioned, had been for about two years afflicted with a painful abscess, and had been prescribed for without relief by more than one medical gentleman. He was urged by some of his friends not only in his own village, but in neighboring ones, to consult the witch-doctor, as they were convinced he was under some evil influence. He agreed and sent his wife to the cunning man who lived in New St. Swithins in Lincoln. She was informed by this ignorant impostor that her husband's disorder was an infliction of the devil, occasioned by his next-door neighbors who had made use of certain charms for that purpose. From the description he gave of the process, it appears to be the same as that employed by Dr. Fyon and Gelly Duncan to work woe upon King James. 
He stated that the neighbors, instigated by a witch whom he pointed out, took some wax and molded it before the fire into the form of her husband, as near as they could represent him. They then pierced the image with pins on all sides, repeated the Lord's Prayer backwards, and offered prayers to the devil that he would fix his stings into the person whom that figure represented, in like manner as they pierced it with pins. To counteract the effects of this diabolical process, the witch-doctor prescribed a certain medicine, and a charm to be worn next to the body, on that part where the disease principally lay. The patient was to repeat the 109th and 119th psalms every day, or the cure would not be effectual. The fee which he claimed for this advice was a guinea. So efficacious is faith in the cure of any malady, that the patient actually felt much better after a three weeks' course of this prescription. The notable charm which the quack had given was afterwards opened and found to be a piece of parchment, covered with some cabalistic characters and signs of the planets. The next-door neighbors were in great alarm that the witch-doctor would, on the solicitation of the recovering patient, employ some means to punish them for their pretended witchcraft. To escape the infliction they seed another cunning man in Nottinghamshire, who told them of a similar charm, which would preserve them from all the malice of their enemies. The writer concludes by saying that the doctor, not long after he had been thus consulted, wrote to say that he had discovered that his patient was not afflicted by Satan, as he had imagined, but by God, and would continue more or less in the same state till his life's end. An imposture carried on a similar trade in the neighborhood of Tunbridge Wells about the year 1830. He had been in practice for several years, and charged enormous fees for his advice. This fellow pretended to be the seventh son of a seventh son and to be endowed in consequence with miraculous powers for the cure of all diseases, but especially of those resulting from witchcraft. It was not only the poor who employed him, but ladies who rode in their carriages. He was often sent for from a distance of sixty or seventy miles by these people, who paid all his expenses to and fro, besides rewarding him handsomely. He was about eighty years of age, and his extremely venerable appearance aided his imposition in no slight degree. His name was Oakey, or Oakley. In France, the superstition at this day is even more prevalent than it is in England. Garinet, in his history of magic and sorcery in that country, cites upwards of twenty instances which occurred between the years 1805 and 1818. In the latter year, no less than three tribunals were occupied with trials originating in this humiliating belief. We shall cite only one of them. Julien de Bourdes, aged fifty-three, a mason, an inhabitant of the village of Thilouze, near Bordeaux, was taken suddenly ill in the month of January, 1818. As he did not know how to account for his malady, he suspected at last that he was bewitched. He communicated this suspicion to his son-in-law, Bridier, and they both went to consult a sort of idiot named Baudun, who passed for a conjurer or white witch. This man told them that de Bourde was certainly bewitched, and offered to accompany them to the house of an old man named Renard, who he said was undoubtedly the criminal. On the night of the 23rd of January, all three proceeded stealthily to the dwelling of Renard, and accused him of afflicting persons with diseases by the aid of the devil. De Bourde fell on his knees, and earnestly entreated to be restored to his former health, promising that he would take no measures against him for the evil he had done. The old man denied in the strongest terms that he was a wizard, and when de Bourde still pressed him to remove the spell from him, he said he knew nothing about the spell and refused to remove it. 
the idiot Baudun, the white witch, now interfered and told his companions that no relief for the malady could ever be procured until the old man confessed his guilt. To force him to confession they lighted some sticks of sulphur which they had brought with them for the purpose, and placed them under the old man's nose. In a few moments he fell down suffocated and apparently lifeless. They were all greatly alarmed, and thinking that they had killed the man, they carried him out and threw him into a neighboring pond, hoping to make it appear that he had fallen in accidentally. The pond, however, was not very deep, and the coolness of the water reviving the old man, he opened his eyes and sat up. De Bourde and Bridier, who were still waiting on the bank, were now more alarmed than before, lest he should recover and inform against them. They therefore waded into the pond, seized their victim by the hair of the head, beat him severely, and then held him under water till he was drowned. They were all three apprehended on the charge of murder a few days afterwards. De Bourde and Bridier were found guilty of aggravated manslaughter only, and sentenced to be burnt on the back, and to work in the galleys for life. The white witch, Baudun, was acquitted on the ground of insanity. M. Garnet further informs us that France at the time he wrote, 1818, was overrun by a race of fellows who made a trade of casting out devils and finding out witches. He adds also that many of the priests in the rural districts encouraged the superstition of their parishioners by resorting frequently to exorcism whenever any foolish persons took it into their heads that a spell had been thrown over them. He recommended as a remedy for the evil that all these exorcists, whether lay or clerical, should be sent to the galleys, and felt assured that the number of witches would then very sensibly diminish. Many other instances of this lingering belief might be cited in both France and Great Britain, and indeed in every other country in Europe. So deeply rooted are some errors that ages cannot remove them. The poisonous tree that once overshadowed the land may be cut down by the sturdy efforts of sages and philosophers. The sun may shine clearly upon spots where venomous things once nestled in security and shade but still the entangled roots are stretched beneath the surface, and may be found by those who dig. Another king like James I might make them vegetate again, and more mischievous still, another pope like Innocent VIII might raise the decaying roots to strength and verdure. Still it is consoling to think that the delirium has passed away, that the raging madness has given place to a milder folly, and that we may now count by units the votaries of a superstition, which in former ages numbered its victims by tens of thousands, and its votaries by millions. End of chapter 2, part 10. Recording by Philip Gould.